Well, take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Our text is uh, chapter 11, verse 12 through 25. We'll do our best. We may not make it down through this with our time remaining. Uh, but we are in the middle of a series in Mark. If you're visiting today, we teach verse by verse, what we call expository preaching. We want to know what the Bible has to say. We want to understand it verse by verse, word by word at times. Because this is God's word teaching us. Uh, not man teaching man. We want to hear from God, and so we enjoy doing this together. Let me pray, and then we'll begin to look into this text. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather together. We are so grateful for this time of Thanksgiving. We've celebrated this week truly a, a Christian holiday, Lord. Uh, not too often muddied up by commercialism. But for us, it's a time for us to express our joy and our thankfulness to our God and particularly to the inexpressible gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came and did what we could not do. He undid all of our sin. He washed that away. He gave us a righteous, eternal standing with the Father. There can be nothing more grateful than that, Lord. And that yet we find much gratitude in daily life. The families you've given us, the jobs and the income. All the kindness you show to us, giving us life and breath each and every day, Lord. We thank you that we were able to slow down and give praise, Lord. Father, we thank you for the next holiday coming. Uh, we know that with it comes time off and a uh, tremendous amount of commercialism. But it is marked and known by the Christian world for the coming of Jesus Christ. The God-man is stepping into the world. And so, Lord, we look forward to many times in the Word, knowing you better, understanding this great sacrifice as Christ steps out of this perfect situation in heaven, equality with the Father, and comes and adds humanity to himself in order to die for us. So give us a great Christmas season as we think through those things and apply them to our lives, Lord. Father, we do pray for those who are ill today. Um, Lord, we know of one dear member, Lord, that is on the way to hospital now and struggling. And so we pray for that family, Lord. We pray for others that are having uh, surgery this week, going through uh, difficulties, friends and families of our members, Lord. Please be merciful. Help them, Lord, in their time of need. Now, Lord, open our hearts and minds to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm just old enough to remember uh, back in the uh, late 60s and early 70s where commercials had to be approved that they were not selling something that wasn't true. Some of you are in here old enough to remember that. And there would be false advertisement and the government would go after them for those things. I am not sure where those days have gone, <laughs> but they are long gone. And there is a tremendous amount of false advertisement. Everything that's misleading and even deceptive, um, from health care to uh, unproven products and to vitamins and weight loss formulas and all those things that bombard you. And as we end the year, get ready for every other commercial to be about weight loss. And some trick, some new fad to try to help you uh, think you can lose weight in some unbelievably quick fashion. This is the message that Jesus is trying to show in this text. It is a complex text because he's dealing with several things. He's using illustrations, and then he's going to model what he is going to expose is unproductiveness. 
faith that's dead that leads to an unproductive life in fact takes the very things that God that God laid down and misuses them and he's going to use some miraculous work with a tree and then he himself is going to go in and do work in the temple that will enrage religious leaders against him he will expose their deceptive work their unproductive unproductivity that they have engaged in for now years. And Jesus will bring this out and it'll incite the leading to his death. Let's look at a couple of thoughts this morning as we work through this text. Number one, Jesus warns against deception and unproductiveness. Unproductiveness. Jesus warns against these things. Look with me at verse 12. You'll remember that Jesus has come in the day before. He has had his great triumphal entry. He has now gone, he went back out of the city, went back to Bethany where he resided most likely with Martha and Mary and Lazarus in that home. And now the Bible says here in verse 12, on the next day when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Now Matthew records this event here, this fig tree, more concise, marked as a more uh, a fuller view of what takes place there. And notice that this event takes place the day after his entry here. Matthew says it's early. But it's intriguing. It says that Jesus became hungry. And it's intriguing in, in many ways, isn't it? That the king of glory, the one who made that tree that he is going to curse, is now hungry. And it teaches us of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think sometimes... Uh, we see Christ in all of his power and his authority, but, and, and we protect that deity, don't we? Because every religion in the world teaches us that he's not God, right? They all do. They all reject that he's not God and, and not equal with the Father. But, so we battle against that, and we protect his deity. But one of the things we must learn, and as we study his life, is he was fully man too. And that's such an important thing. If he's not fully man, he cannot die. You can't kill God. And I love passages like this because it says he became hungry. <laughs> he, he's, he's embraced his humanity. He shares in the innocent infirmities that you and I share in. Your stomach will start rumbling before I get done. You'll start thinking about Cracker Barrel before I can finish. Hope you stay with me. He shares that with us. He goes through it. The Bible says he suffers in all the ways we do. He took upon humanity. You have to realize how, what that means. He, he did not just become partly man or kind of man. He was fully man, yet embracing his full deity at the same time. That's why we call him the great God-man. Now, there are some other thoughts I got thinking about. I said, well, why is he hungry? Wasn't he staying with Martha and Mary and Lazarus? In fact, we know from John 11 that they were very hospitable. They, they took care of him. In fact, there was an argument between the sisters because one was not helping out, serving the other people. So there's evidence that they were very hospitable. And I got thinking about that, and I thought maybe it was worth thinking through a little bit. Why is Jesus hungry when he just came from this family that he knew very well? Well, possibly, possibly, this is my thoughts here, maybe Jesus spent the whole night praying. It was his custom. We see him do that often. Often he sets his disciples, and, and it's almost like he puts them to bed and sneaks off. And, and he prays and spends time with his father. 
And he prays the whole night. And think about this. It's possible that after coming in and viewing the temple, remember in verse 11, after he came in the triumphal entry, he goes to the temple, he looks around, and then leaves. He now knows what he needs to do. And possibly, this is just my thoughts here, possibly he spent the night praying, talking with the Father. What I'm about to gonna do is going to upset the apple cart. <laughs> you know what you've written for me to do. This may not go well. And so maybe that was one reason. Perhaps Jesus had been so engrossed with what laid ahead of him beyond the temple. Maybe he began to think about, there's going to be that time I will cry out to my Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That time is just pressing in. It's now Tuesday possibly of that week. He's moving closer to that Friday when they'll drive nails in him and pierce him. Possibly that robbed him of his inclination to eat or sleep. Notice this tree. As he comes, he sees this tree, and it's full of foliage. And, and, and maybe that sparked his need for food. He was human. He, he needed food to keep up the energy uh, to minister and do all that he had to do. Verse 13, as a scene at a distance a tree and leaf mean the word that term means in full foliage. And when he, he went to see it, perhaps if he would find anything on it, and he came to it and he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. The fact that this tree had a abundant foliage ahead of the season, this would have been you know, mid-spring um, figs didn't come some of the early figs would come sometimes in June but most of them came late in the summer he held out promise it held out promise he looked at this tree it, it looked like it should have something on it. it it's in full foliage it looks beautiful it looks like it's ready for something to be on it and then he comes and the Bible says he found nothing but leaves and so here he begins to set example, this tree did not fulfill its promise. It looks like a tree that should. It has everything it needs, but it failed. It does not fulfill the promise that it showed outwardly. Often, people question this text of Jesus' omniscience. They'll say, well, this Jesus of yours who seems in many other times to, to know of things that are going to happen. Peter, go down, cast your rod off, and you'll catch a fish, and in it will be a coin. Give that to him for our taxes. He seems to have incredible omniscience. But in this passage, our all-knowing Savior comes to look at the tree to see if there was actually anything there. Isn't that intriguing? When you study the life of Christ, we find that Jesus never uses his supernatural uh, knowledge or power to meet his own needs. Look at it. Chase the text around. He does not use his supernatural power or knowledge to meet his own personal needs. He uses supernatural power in compassion for others, but he doesn't use it for himself or the, fulfill, the fulfillment of his mission. He knows what God has done. He knows he needs to be suffering. He knows to be one uh, that suffers in every way. And so he does not use that. 
And so here, Jesus does use his divine power in keeping with his messianic mission to curse the tree after he knows it's fruitless. But he never uses that power. And I love that about this because it tells me my Lord, my Lord suffered like I suffered. And think about this, just hunger. And maybe he hadn't eaten. It was early in the morning. They left. Their, their typical meal was later in the morning. Uh, the Jews would eat a little later in the morning. Maybe they left before that. Whatever the reason may have been, my Lord was hungry. And he did not take this power and abuse it in any way. He was like you and I. He suffered being hungry till he found a meal later. I find such comfort in there. Only Mark records that this tree is out of season. None of the other writers do. Um, And this underlines the fact that there was no reason for fruit to be on the tree. So now we begin to understand that there's something going on here. Jesus has a plan with this tree. He's doing something here. There's a lesson here. There's something Jesus wants us to know as we study this. This tree looks mature, but it has no fruit. Look at verse 14 with me. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. What Jesus says here is in regards to the empty profession. In all your foolish, in all of your position, you look like you should have something. But you have nothing. It's all outward. It's all out on the limb. There's nothing on the branch. There's nothing produced from this tree. I don't believe Jesus is angry here at this lying tree in a sense. I think he's calm and he's using this situation as an illustration of professing uh, someone who professes faith also produces something, right? And, And let me bring some clarity to this. We in no way, as Hayward said very clearly as he uh, read in in, uh, Philippians chapter 3, we in no way gain our own righteousness by our works. But the righteousness of Christ gained through the work of Christ alone has to produce fruit within us. People often say, well, I've said prayers, I've walked aisles, um, but I don't live for Jesus. You know, that's a real denial of the power of Christ. It's an absolute mockery of the power of Christ. I want you to think about this. If Christ can save you from eternal damnation, does he not have the power to change your life? To produce something within you? See, we don't look at the things we do, our church attendance, our giving, or, or giving somebody a basket and caring for them or going and preaching the gospel to someone. We don't look at that as accredited to our account for our own righteousness. We see that as the result of the righteousness that God gave us. James jumps all over this, doesn't he? James chapter 2. But some may say, well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. See there, back in the first century, there was, there was Christians like today that would say, oh yeah, hey, I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer. Hmm. Walking aisles don't save you. Praying prayers don't save you. God saves you. And when God saves you, he changes you. You're now his family. You now resemble him. We become those who are ever being coming more in the image of Christ, being made in the image of Christ. There's things he produces. It's the power of Christ to change a life. I think that's why we have to be careful sometimes um, as we 
watch professions that, that we too come alongside that person and help them grow, see if there's a, an internal desire with them. The spirit now lives within the same person. That person should desire, should desire to serve him in some way. And it may start small, but in time should grow. I think so often this illustration of this fig tree is so often too true in churches today. We got all the foolish, been to Sunday school, sang in the choir, done all the things. And yet when Christ comes to inspect, there's nothing. It's a sad day, isn't it? I mean, you start thinking about this picture, don't you? Can you see it? It looks, it looks like it should have it, but it doesn't. And in the end, it is cursed forever. It dies. No fruit, no life. That's what the passage says. Now, he's going to relate this nationally a little bigger. And I think he's talking about the nation of Israel in some ways, but you and I are not the nation of Israel. You and I are people who profess to have foolish, profess to have fruit, is their fruit. And so it's a great lesson, isn't it? The scene outside of Jerusalem at this frig tree was about deceitfulness. It was about the appearance of productivity, but yet fruitless. I think both Matthew and Mark recognize the difference between the parable he told earlier um, and this one. There are some that say it's the same thing happening, but Jesus uses this twice. Now, he uses a tree, a parable of a tree, to show the difference. And it is quite possible this is representing the nation of Israel and their proud boasting of being God's favored people, and yet they can't even handle his temple right. And we'll see that just in a moment. They reject the things of God. There's no fruit. There's no evidence. And in fact, think about this. The long-awaited Messiah, the one they have waited for for years, the one they have cried out for, is now among their midst. The day before, they worshipped him as the son of David. And in three days, they'll cry, crucify him. It's a fruitless tree. It's a tree that looks like it's in bloom, but there's no fruit on it. And Jesus was about, yet again, to expose the heart of hypocrisy as he heads for the temple. And I think even the greater lesson is, is for us here as well, that we may profess, but does the power of Christ produce in us? What, what, what's found on you? When somebody comes by and they want to feast on something God has done in your life, is there evidence on it? I remember a long time ago, speaking at a cowboy function, I was speaking out of the parables, and particularly the, the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus talked about the false fruits that were there. And I, I, I said, look, does people come up and just find one dead, dried apple from last season on your life, Christian? I remember this cowboy come up and said, that was me, totally. I've been with Christ. I know he saved me, but I've been living a fruitless life. I, oh, sure, I go to church. I, I say the right things. I sing the songs, but there's nothing in my life where people can taste Christ. I'm living a fruitless life. And by God's grace, God strengthened him, and he began to 
repent and turn to the Lord, even as a Christian, there's times of repentance, there's times where we look at our lives and go, I am fruitless. I'm all about myself. I wake up thinking about myself, I go to bed thinking about myself. Will you forgive me, Father? Your son didn't die for me to think about myself. So here Jesus is about ready to cleanse a temple, but he makes a stop to show his disciples what he thinks about those who claim to have fruit but have not. Number two, Jesus exposes the heart of hypocrisy in his father's house. Jesus exposes the heart of hypocrisy in his father's house. It's an interesting setup here as we study this text. He's got his 12. He stops and does an illustration with them. This is what I think about that. Now I'm going to go show you what I think about it. And here he enters in. The cleansing of the temple is recorded in all the Gospels. This must be important. The, the writers moved by the Spirit of God saw fit to put the second cleansing in the temple. There's clear differences between the cleansings. The first, when he, in the first cleansing, we see in John chapter 2, he comes in and cleanses the temple. He's immediately met by the religious, religious leaders. Here he's met at the end. In the first one, he makes references to his own death. Here he speaks about the robbery of his father's house. In the first one, he dresses all those in uh, present. Um, uh, in this one, in this one, he, he's going to talk to everybody. In the in the first one, he only talks to the leaders. So clearly, they're different events. But but notice verse fifteen. It says that when he came into Jerusalem. Now this statement marks the second entry. Yesterday, the day before, he had come in. Now he's the second entry in this Passion Week. And, and this think about these entries. The, the first entry, he's the King of Israel, right? This is the son of David. Hosanna. They sing and throw palm branches and, and worship him. On this day, he enters as God's high priest. <laughs> and he's there to pronounce, pronounce judgment over the perversion of worship in his father's house. One day he comes in as the messianic Messiah, one sent by God. This time sent as the high priest going to the temple. Mark tells us that Jesus entered the temple. I want you to think about this scene here. The temple area covered about 30 acres. It's surrounded by high walls on all the sides. And, and then just outside the outer space of the entire temple was another space that was somewhat walled off with a lower wall. And it was called the Court of the Gentiles. And this is where we believe Jesus ends up. This was open to both Jews and Gentiles. But there was a gate that led to another courtyard. And above that gate, going into what they called the courtyard of women, this is where Jewish women were allowed to go in and worship. Sacrifices were brought in there. They were given to the priest. The priest would take them into the inner courtyard and their sacrifice. But above this gate, going into this second courtyard, it would say, no Gentiles. You can't enter here. So this, this inner court would allow Worship for Jews only. But this outer court was set for the Gentiles. And it's interesting that Mark describes this. In fact, Mark alone mentions this, that this is for all nations. And this is where things had turned awry. It was turned into a, a bazaar. There was selling of animals and exchanging of monies. All this was going on in this court of Gentiles was what was not meant for this to happen. 
And I think what's amazing is that Jesus begins his work of the day by taking a decisive action against the commercial activity of the father's house. And he heads right for that Gentile courtyard. You think, well, Jesus, they, they just worshiped you. They were hailing you as the son of David and singing Hosanna. And now you come in with the goal to disrupt their commerce? He knew what he was doing. And he knew what he was going to do that day. Notice the middle of verse 15. He comes into the temple and he begins driving out those who were buying and selling in the temple. He's overturning the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Notice the article uh, there that shows there's two groups that are going on there. There's, there's money changers and there's sellers of animals. And, and both of these groups are evil. This is, this is not what God intended for them to do. They, they share in this evil deed. The animals were sold at very high prices. There was uh, someone there to inspect your animal and say, well, that wasn't fit, but for 1995, we can give you this other dove or whatever you need. It was, it was also money laundering in, in a sense. Jews had their own money that could only be given to the temple, but if you lived out in Nazareth or Galilee or somewhere else, you, you had Roman money. And, and on that Roman money, there was an image of Caesar, and so that was idol worship, and so you couldn't give that money to, to the temple, so you had to give Jewish money, so that means you had to exchange that money, and guess what, for a percentage rate, we can do that for you. Kind of a MasterCard visa type of taxes was going on. Exodus chapter 20, excuse me, verse Exodus 30 says that every male 20 years and older had to pay these taxes. It was to keep the temple running and to support the priest and all of that. It was set up to bring people to God, that they would know God's standard and ultimately to see that they would fall short of those things and there would be only one righteous lamb, but it was set up for that. You say, well, these leaders were wicked. Well, the Jewish people were not so healthy themselves. It was known that many of them would not select their own animals because they know the priests would do it for them. It became a, a convenience to them. They did not think and plan ahead and say, oh, this is what God wants us to do. We'll just make the journey to Jerusalem. When we get there, there's somebody selling something. We'll just get one of theirs. No thought, no worship put into it. We'll just show up. Think that ever happens at church? No preparatory work in our hearts and our minds before we come. Oh, Scott's going to preach today. We'll just go hear him. Hayward's going to lead us. We're going to sing. See, we fall into this and I don't think the Jewish people are, are free from guilt here. And then this whole operation is being run by the high priest. The, the rule was, their rule was, whoever's the high priest at that time, him and his clan got to run this bazaar and make all this money. It's total abuse of power. It's personal greed. It's probably Alexandra and his sons, we see in Acts chapter 4, who killed Christ, who are now wanting in Acts chapter 4, wanting to kill Peter and John. It's probably them. And Jesus' action in this text was a direct challenge to their high priest authority. Notice he's overturning tables and chairs. This is a strong action. You know, I get up here and start kicking chairs around, you're going to think I'm lost it. But this is precious to the Lord. This is the word of God. This is what has been set down. And there's an abuse of this, isn't it? 
But this is a serious attack on business and pride. This is like going down to the outlets and tearing up, you know, Under Armour. Somebody's going to be mad on Black Friday. This is their day. This is their week. Yes, the day before, I believe, probably the lambs. That's why I think there's only doves mentioned here. That's been taken care of because they deselect the lambs. But there's still these sacrifices of sin and sin offerings and, and offerings of worship going on. And they're selling stuff and changing money. And people are coming in late because of long travel. And they need to change money in for their taxes. And all, all that's going on here. It's a madhouse. And right in the middle of it, Jesus is throwing over tables and chairs. It might be an expression of the wrath of the Lamb. We see that a little bit. Look at Malachi. Go back with me. There's a passage in Malachi that I think uh, has both what we would call a near and far fulfillment to it. And it fits a little bit in here. And I think Jesus is showing a little bit that one day he's coming. (laughs) And you better watch out the second time he shows up. But I think maybe, possibly, this fits a little bit here that he was showing and expressing some of this one who is going to come to the temple of God and he is going to cleanse in the day of his coming. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 with me. Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Kind of see a little clearing going on in our text in Mark, aren't we? And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The religious leaders aren't there. They're going to get word and come because they're going to hear what's going on. And the Lord will... And the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he has come and says the host of the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? When you read this, I remember reading this as a little boy. I go, why didn't somebody stop this guy? You know, if somebody goes down to the outlets and starts throwing stuff around, I think security's coming. Somebody's going to jump on you and put you in cuffs. But who can endure him? He had such authority in this day, nobody stops him. I think this is just a prelude to his coming someday when he'll rule with an iron rod and he will separate sheep and goats and will condemn people for eternal damnation and set people into eternal life. He says, who can stand when he appears? For he is like the refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He cleanses. So I think there's a little bit, when you look at Malachi chapter 3, I think this is a, uh, a precursor to that coming. And we see it here in Mark. Notice verse 16. Back in our text. This is interesting. He would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. This verse is real particular, Mark. No one else mentions this. None of the other three writers. And basically what's happened is Jesus would not allow the temple to be used as some thoroughfare as they passed by the temple to get into the city. It had turned into some kind of shortcut. And so not only is this commerce going on and the selling of these animals and the exchanging of money, but there, there's also a shortcut through the temple property just to get into the city. Now, I, I mean, I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. I know gridlock, and you're always looking for a shortcut. But that's not the way God wanted things done, and Jesus knows it. He knows this is his father's house. And so it seems in verse 16 that he spends some time here stopping, not permitting just the carrying of merchandise through this temple area. Now, I think more importantly, this reveals an an irreverent people. They they had no regard anymore for the things of God. They had no regard for his temple. They did not regard the commandments that God had laid down for them. 
And those commandments were designed to show them they needed a savior. And that was Jesus that was on present. But he gave them those commands to bring them to that. And they disregarded that. And when you disregard God's command, you'll never know you need a savior. The main verb implies that Jesus remained there enforcing this command for some time. And when the leadership, think about this, when leadership does not lead people towards reverency of who God is and preach a God that is holy and teach a high view of God, people by nature, their sinful nature, will take them to irreverence. Happens all the time. And and look, I'm not trying to say that, you know, we should preach you have to wear certain things and all of that. We accept all kinds of people who come here dressed any way. That's not what this is about. But I think when leadership disregards what God says about his own holiness and how he is to be approached, guess what happens to the people? It turns into a street fair. And that's what's taking place here. Now, under the new covenant, which is we are under, with the new covenant of Jesus Christ that fulfilled the old covenant and ushered in a new covenant that, that we live in Christ, we live under grace, it changes our view of worship, doesn't it? I love the new covenant because now it teaches me gratitude. The old covenant showed me I needed a savior. The new covenant teaches me I am so grateful for you, Lord Jesus. I want to go to church. I want to be with your people. I want to approach you as a holy God, but yet you're my Abba Father, and I want to climb in your lap and pour my heart out to you. There is that balance that we have with our God and Savior now. He is is to be worshipped. He is not to be messed around with. His word is true, and we should honor that, and yet we we can crawl up in his lap and say, Abba Father, I need help. See, the new covenant gives us that. I think that's what the writer of Hebrews was trying to express in chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with sincere hearts in full assurance of faith. Not faith in ourselves, not in the faith that God has given. He's, because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from our evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He has changed us. He has presented us new. So when we come to church, we look at it different. He goes on to say this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another with love and good deeds, not rob each other. (laughs) See what the blood of Christ does for us? I don't want to take advantage of you. I want to help you. (laughs) I want to pray for your business. I want to encourage you to be a gospel witness out there. I'm a pastor. I spend my life here shepherding and caring for you and helping in different needs as we as pastors do we shepherd you and lead you and draw you towards christ that's our goal to bring you that way but one of the ways we do that is we pray for you as husbands and wives and families and and we try to encourage you in your businesses and and to act godly and represent christ out there that's our goal so we consider how to stimulate one another see the new covenant has freed us from keeping some law and regulations that merely in time just go away and you turn into a big bazaar the church becomes get what you can get. The new covenant teaches us not to forsake our own assemblings of ourselves together. When you study this text, they had forsaken what God had said. I'm going to show you, this court of Gentiles was a very, very important thing to God. And they trashed it. God says, don't forsake your assembling together. Ah, you guys want to go to church? Mm, beach is awful nice today. God says, don't, don't forsake your assembling. 
Come together. The blood of Christ has allowed you to be here, to be a part of, to be a, part of a body. Don't put that away. The Bible says as is a habit of some. But encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends and, and brothers and sisters in Christ, think about this as a holy convocation here. This is a holy gathering. God is holy and he has made us holy and he brings us together so the things that he gives us, the preaching of the word, the worship, the fellowship of the saints, the breaking of bread, these are things that are holy to God that he lets us join in now as family members. And we handle them with reverence. It seems, as you look at this text, Christ was tired of the mockery of his father's house. He's tired of it. And I think there's a fine line between legalism and worship at times. And please don't, don't hear the sermonism pushing certain dress or certain you know, way to worship or anything like that. I think it becomes, the way you get this right is you just have a right view of God according to his word. He is holy. He's absent of sin. He's a God who's known us from the foundations of the world and would not let us go. His own, our only hope is that he would fulfill his word, his promise in Genesis chapter 3 that he would send someone who would crush the head of Satan who would take us to hell if he would not send him. It's an amazing God. And you and I as believers, true believers in here, we line our affairs up under him because he's worthy of it. You hear me say this all the time. We do this not because we have to, but because we get to. The world doesn't get to do this. To them, they come, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, Christer, somebody said, they're Christers. Um, they don't get it. Why are you guys wasting a perfectly good Sunday? We come because Christ has saved us. Notice what Jesus does with this opportunity. Verse 17, he began to teach. He began to teach. The verb implies that he taught for a while, much more than what's recorded here. He teaches for a long time. And the subject that he's teaching about is the purpose of his tem temple and how God's divine purpose of the temple was to commune with his people. It's my father's house, he says in the other recordings. It is a place of prayer. It's a house of prayer. God has provided a place for you to come to commune with my father, and you've turned it into a bazaar. Notice what he uses to back that up. He says, is it not written? So Jesus takes him right to God's word. He's quoting Isaiah 56, 7. The context there is that there is salvation for all nations there's a place to worship for all nations and it's in it's god's house it's the father's house and, and he makes this appeal he says it's not is it not written he's appealing to god's word and there was no jew that could argue with that he begins to quote what god says this is why we preach the bible if i get up here and give you my opinions i'll have all kinds of dis disagreements you'll come up and argue with me and i'll give you my opinion you give you yours you know, we'll agree to disagree. I hate that statement. But instead, what we do is we go to God's word. And what that does for us, those who are in the faith, we go, okay, yeah, ooh, that hurts a little bit, but I'll line my affairs up under God's word. And that's what Jesus does, right? Now, something that's very important, notice that he says in this statement, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? 
but you have, been, but you have made it a robber's den. Now, there's a couple things I want you to pick out here in just our time remaining here. Number one, he calls it my house. Some of the other translations calls it my father's house. So, so a couple thoughts. It's my house. It's my father's house. It's our house. So what did he do? He put himself on equality with father. That's going to cause a problem with the Jews. Causes a lot of problems with every religion outside of Christianity today. So first of all, he does that. Then he sets this up as it's not for just you Jews. Notice the last phrase. And only remark records the whole statement here. He says, for all the nations. Now that's amazing. For all the nations. The temple was set up for all the nations. Jesus is mission-minded. He always has been mission-minded. The promise is down from, it comes all the way from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that he is going to send a seed through Abraham, and that seed would be a blessing to all nations, all ethnos, all peoples. And here he even set the temple up way back in the book of Exodus when the law was being given. He set it up for all nations. God was always thinking of all nations. The Jews were not. So guess what they do? They take the only place where the Gentiles can come and their greed turns the Gentile court into a bazaar. Peter catches on to this. Remember, we believe that Mark, of course, Mark wasn't probably at this setting. He is the understudy to Peter. He hears Peter preach these sermons. By the inspiration of the Spirit, Peter records uh, the book of Mark as he listens to Peter preach. I think it's remembered here of all nations because of Peter. Acts chapter 10. Peter has a vision. Go to Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile, not going. Go to Cornelius. I'm going to save him. Okay, Lord, that's a little bit of a stretch. I'll go. Oh, by the way, I have some meat for you to eat. Whoa, whoa, whoa. My lips have never touched before. That's what the Gentiles do. God personally breaks down the division in Peter's mind between Jews and Gentiles. He begins to hear of all the, the, Jew, the Gentiles are being saved. Paul is coming back and reporting in Acts chapter 15 of all of the Gentiles being saved. Spirit is beginning to fill them. And I think what Peter does, he's amazed at that. He sees Gentiles coming to faith. It affects him greatly. And all the other writers don't record this, but he records that phrase out of Isaiah 56, 7, for all the nations. And I think Peter says, I didn't know what Jesus was doing then, but now I know. He's rebuking the nation of Israel from blocking the Gentiles from coming and communing with God. Notice something else that's very interesting in this phrase here in verse 17. He says, but you have made it a robber's den. There's a conjunction here. There's a contrast See that word but there, it's a contrast, uh, it's a contrasting conjunction, it's linking thoughts together, real adversive thoughts. One is there's this thought that this is a house of prayer, but here Jesus says you've made it a den of thieves. And so uh, he uses a, a tense, a verb tense that says you've been doing this for a long time. 
This was supposed to be a place where you communed with the Father. This was supposed to be a place where you had a relationship with God. You came and met him here and, and he provided for you to have a relationship with him. But you've turned it into a place where not only just thieves are, but where dens of thieves are where they hide out. Now it's getting intense. <laughs> because Jesus chose his words very carefully. He says, you're not only using this to rob, but you're using this as a refuge for robbers. Uh-oh. Now he's after the religious leaders. Notice he does not say, you have made this robbers. He said that you made this robbers' dens. This is where people live. This is where robbers hang out. This is a place that protects the guilty. This is where the thieves hide. And Jesus points this out. So you, the contrast is supposed to be a place where you can commune with the Father. You hide your robbers here. That was what the religious rulers were. They're the tree. They're the ones that have all the foolish. They can say all the things, quote all the passages, say all that, and there's not a bit of fruit hanging on them. You know what Jesus calls them? Thieves. Because they rob. And they particularly rob God's glory. Now, verse 18, he doesn't He's, he's not hiding this, but look what happens in verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard of this. Well, it didn't take long during this event. Remember, this is ongoing. The verb tense tells us that he's here basically all day in the Gentile court. He's cleaned it out. He's stopping people from making a traffic jam through the Gentile court here. Eventually, words, this event, get back to the religious leaders. And it gets back to two groups of people, the chief priests and the scribes. Both those groups make up the Sanhedrin, 70 men who ruled over the nation of Israel. And they show up. And here Jesus is hitting them right in their financial pocket. And their response is amazing. Notice what it says. They began to seek how to destroy him. The verb tense teaches us that they knew they wanted to destroy him, but they didn't know how to do it. Remember, Jesus is new in, in Jerusalem. He's not been there. He's been out in Galilee. He's been out in the highways and byways. He's only been in once early in his ministry. There's really little evidence that he's ever come back. And so they haven't heard him before. And so they've heard the stories. They've heard from every, other religious leaders. Now they're seeing it firsthand. And now they need to make a plan. Their hatred makes them need a plan. And you know how this begins. God is going to allow things to happen. But this plan entails Judas. It entails Pilate. It entails Herod. And it entails the Jews themselves. And the cleansing of the temple was God's sovereign plan to arouse deadly, wicked, sinful men to wicked deeds. And you go, whoa, God's sovereignty was in this? Yes, let me show you a passage, and then we'll close. Go to Acts. You need to see this. God is not credited for sin, but you need to see this text, because God's using this event to arouse the wickedness of these leaders. In fact, I'll show you two texts to help drive this home in your heart. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, day of Pentecost, Peter's preaching a sermon. Each person is hearing it in their native tongue. It is miraculous what God is doing. This is not babbling tongues. This is tongues that they hear in their own language. Verse 23, he's preaching on Jesus. He says, this man, that's Christ, delivered over, look at this phrase, delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. You ever read a book where they ask the question, who killed Jesus? 
I think you can answer it in many ways, but here, certainly God. This man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. You see that and there? That's a chi. It links these two thoughts together in equality. God's foreknowledge was his predetermined plan. But then look at the rest of the phrase. You nailed him to a cross. Guess where the blame falls? God has a masterful way of of executing his sovereignty over the hearts and minds and wills of people. And yet he is not, he's not charged with this crime. These men are, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godly, godless men, Judas, Judas, Pilate, Herod, the Jews, and you put him to death. Notice chapter four, just turn over. They just got done preaching to uh, Alexandra and his, and his sons and, and they're released, and they're, but they're threatened. And Peter begins to pray. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city, this is chapter 4, verse 27. Truly in this city there were, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, whom you chose, whom you predetermined and foreknew is the idea here. Both Herod, Pontius, Pilate, along with Gentiles, that's the Romans, and the people of Israel. Look at this, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. <laughs> oh my goodness, what a set of verses. If you don't like the sovereignty of God, you're not going to like those verses. He says this, this group, this group that came against your anointed son whom you set aside this Herod, this Pontius Pilate, these Gentiles, these, these Israelites, they did what your hand and your purposes predestined to do. And so you go, well, why does all this cleansing go through? This was God's way of arousing the wickedness of those people in their hearts to kill Jesus. It didn't take much. <laughs> it was like just a little push and they took off because he hit them in their pocketbooks. But notice the people, as you go back to Mark, and we'll end, we just got to end right here, and we'll come back and finish this later. Notice these people, they were amazed, weren't they? They began to try to seek how to kill him. They're trying to discover a way. They don't know how to do this, but they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. That's amazing, isn't it? They're, they're astonished at Jesus. Here he comes. This is in the backyard of the religious leaders. He walks into his temple. He speaks about the temple being his. He says, this is my house. And he begins to preach for however long. We're not sure, but the whole day gets consumed in all of these events. They're amazed at him. And the religious leaders saw the people's reactions. They knew they had to plan this extremely careful because they did not want to lose control of what they had. And so they began to craft a plan it included Judas. And in Luke chapter 22, probably around verse 3, the Bible says that Satan entered Judas. See, the passage says they had to be crafty here. They had to figure out. The crowds were with Jesus on Tuesday of the Passion Week. How are we going to get this turned? That to be crafty. Well, guess who they call on? The most crafty one of them all. <laughs> Satan himself. And he enters Judas a day later. On Wednesday, 
Judas is going to go meet with them. The plan is going to be hatched. And they'll kill Christ on Friday. You see why he cursed the tree before he came in? He wanted his disciples to know you're going to go in there and it's going to be crazy. There's a bazaar going on. People are going to go and I'm going to start turning tables over and throwing people out and I'm going to preach and you're going to go, I don't know what's wrong with Jesus. The whole goal was for them to see. And it didn't probably come till later till the Spirit of God, they said, oh, fruitless trees die. And they put it together. Verse 19, as we close, the evening came and they went out of the city. In the evening, they closed the gates, and Jesus goes back to Bethany, most likely, and there, hopefully, he got something to eat. And he returns the next day, and we'll see this next time, and they're going to come back to that tree, and he's going to teach them an amazing lesson of forgiveness, of prayer, and condemnation. And he's going to use that same tree. We'll look at that next time. Father, thank you for time in your word this morning. It's so marvelous to follow your son in his life and just study him. He, he, he knows exactly what to do. He has control of all things, and yet he does not use his own strength to benefit him, his own self. He suffers as the servant of, the Lord, of, of his Lord and Father in heaven. He suffers for you, Lord. And yet he takes every opportunity that would resonate later with his disciples once the Spirit of God had indwelled in them and helped them understand that this, this life that looks great on the outside is dead inside. And Lord, if there's life inside, it will produce life on the outside. It'll produce fruit. And Lord, then he comes in and cleanses his temple and speaks with so its authority that people are astonished with him, Lord. And, and Lord, as we listen to this text and we read this text, we are astonished with you. And Lord, I know there's many people in this room that would say, we want to do things your way, God. We do not want to be a church that conforms God to our ways. We want to be a church that conforms to his ways. Coming to him his way. Worshiping his way communicating with him his way. Lord, help us. We are the ones who needed to be saved. We are the clay that you molded. We do not speak to the potter and tell the potter what to do. We are the clay in your hands. So Lord, help us as a church that we would be a willing lump of clay. Make us into what you want. Conform us to your will, your way, Lord. And we will find the most joy in that. Lord, I pray for those in this room who are struggling and fighting your way in their life. It could be in relationships. It could be not satisfied with what you've given them. Lord, I pray that you would use this message for us to confess sin and repent of it. And come to you your way, Lord. Not our own way. You're worthy of it, Lord. Father, as we close out, hear our, hear our song to you, Lord. May we sing from our hearts as we close our service. In Jesus' name, amen.